Hey everybody, welcome back to Politics in Perspective. Today we have a very special episode, but on a very serious topic. And um, and for that, I'd love to welcome Miss um, Pock, history teacher at Head Royce, California native, um, Dean of Equity and Inclusion here at Head Royce, and advisor to Asia Club. Um, we're so excited to have you on uh, today, Miss Pock. And I definitely know it's something that we've been trying to do uh, for a little bit. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, like Cole said, um, we're, we're recording this episode on the heels of some uh, very serious event in Atlanta, which we'll, we will discuss later. But before that, we thought it might be good to get to know Ms. Pock a little bit. Um, so Ms. Pock, can you just, I guess, just give us a little background of yourself? Sure, yeah. So um, let's see, I'm a California native. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I grew up in a relatively big family. I'm the oldest of four girls. So definitely have kind of the character traits, I think, of like older sibling, oldest sibling. Um, I moved to the Bay Area just, it will be almost three years this year. It will be three years this year. Um, I moved with my family. I've got two young kids, a son and a daughter. Most of you have probably seen them running around the halls back when we were in school um, full time. And um, yeah, live in the East Bay and enjoying Bay Area life. This is my new home. What's better, uh, SoCal or NorCal? Oh, well, you know, I have very, you know, I have sort of nostalgic and sentimental attachment to LA. Um, my family, all my family's still there, sisters, parents, relatives. Um, I think that's a good question. Um, oh, that's hard. Right now I'm actually going to, I mean, my, my friends and family in LA are going to hate me for this, but I'm skewing towards the Bay Area right now. That's what, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I think something that jumps out to me between the NorCal and SoCal stuff is um, BART. BART is awesome here. <laughs> and I know LA traffic is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And they kind of built their city around driving instead of public transit. So um, even though BART is not the best transit system, I think it makes uh, all of the kind of ecosystem around public transportation here in the uh, Bay Area. Um, really preferable to to what they have going down in um, down south. Yeah, true. I mean, yeah, the traffic is notorious. And that is definitely um, a big minus, I think, for for LA commuters. Um, but it has, you know, I've been down a couple times in this last year, and it has chilled out a little bit, I think, because most people are still working from home. Yeah, and they do have beaches down there, which our beaches are a bit pathetic here up. <laughs> a lot of fog. Yeah, beaches too. and and um, I, I I do miss um, some of the the food in LA, um, and that could be a, a point of debate. But um, the Korean food in LA is hands down the best. Well, um, I'll have to be on the lookout for that next time I'm down there. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, mouth-watering already here early in the morning. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, I think 
with that, we can get started on the discussion we want to have this episode. Um, obviously, like I said, we're recording on the back of the shootings in Atlanta. Um, a lone gunman went to multiple spas frequented by Asian women and killed eight people, six of them being Asian women. Um, yeah, just a tragic event um, that unfortunately is kind of a marks a pattern of events that have happened over the past year. Um, initial reactions to it from either of you? Um, initial reactions to the shootings. Um, yeah. I think, uh, you know, Wednesday morning I woke up with just a swirl of emotions, um, anger, you know, outrage, grief, frustration, fatigue, um, fear, and, and yeah, mostly I think frustration because I think this event garnered immediate national attention. And yet in the past year, we've seen a surge of anti-Asian violence and bigotry um, with very little attention, I think. Um, and so I think feeling that frustration of, wow, it, had to, it took uh, this mass shooting, right, for our leaders to come out and say something, for media to actually cover it uh, carefully. And even that, right, even the media coverage, I think, was problematic. Um, but yeah, I think on a personal level, just a lot of it was triggering for me as an Asian American, as an Asian American woman. Um, and yeah, just felt a lot of, you know, sadness and, and outrage. What about the media coverage that you just mentioned? was so troubling of this specific event. Of course, we're gonna get to the media coverage of Asian American violence in the past year, but about this specific event in Atlanta, what was so um, heartbreaking about their, their actual coverage? Yeah, uh, good question. Well, you know, many of people since Wednesday has really criticized the press conference that law enforcement gave um, the, I think, communications director of, of the sheriff's office in one of the counties, um, you know, <laughs> was very, you know, uh, uh, very much sort of humanizing the killer, right? Um, and saying things like he was having a bad day. Uh, we can't really assume that it's racially motivated. Um, and I think media really just took that statement um, and sort of went forward with it. And I think just, and you know, as young journalists, I think media, even though it's a statement that's released from law enforcement, shouldn't really just like take it as a truth or promote it as truth. Like they should criticize the source, be critical about the source, even if it is, you know, from an authority. I also think in some of the media that I've seen, um, like in, on CNN and other mainstream media, they really emphasize this, like that there's a lot of fear in the Asian community, Asian American community since this, since the shootings. And while I think that is true, I think that it's often the narrative that, um, and the stereotype that Asian Americans are sort of timid and passive and fearful. And while there is fear, there's also anger and action um, among our community. Um, and again, I can't help but think like, you know, the way the media portrays the Asian American community as sort of like fearful. 
um, while, you know, this past summer, or, you know, the general narrative of, with, with black protesters is that they are angry, right? And that um, the black community is angry while the Asian community is fearful. And I just thought that was really interesting when um, there was coverage of um, the recent Atlanta shootings and then also the protests that were going on all summer. Yeah, I agree. Um, and just to kind of add on to that story about the sheriff with the bad day, I remember reading an article about it. And basically, the sheriff of, what was it, Cherokee County, where one of the shootings took place, said, oh, he was having a bad day. And later, people found on that same sheriff's Facebook, he posted photos with a bunch of racist shirts that said, like, Chinese flu and Chinese virus and all that. Um, so, so you know, you know, it's fr- it's frustrating to hear those comments. And the truth is that there's so many people who agree with this, agree with that sheriff um, and feel the same way kind of about the virus and the Asian American community in general. Um, and in terms of just the media in general, I feel like this story of a sex addiction, um, the, the just the, the people are saying that or the shooter is saying that he has a sex addiction and that's he was like, that's why he kind of did the crime. I feel like that's making an excuse for him. Um, and it's kind of ju- it's kind of it's serving to like in a way, kind of justify, justify his actions. And I don't think, I don't think that should be happening. I think they should be telling him how it is, which is that it's a racially motivated hate crime. Um, and I think they should be reporting it as such. Right. And even the whole, you know, the, 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 the connect, connecting the sex addiction to these massage parlors or that these Asian American women were responsible for this man's sex addiction again really points to right the the fetishization of Asian women in in our country and in in you know um, and beyond and just the sexualization of Asian women immigrant women um, and you really see right that that it's 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 complicated. Right. And, and that, yes, there was obviously racial motivation and there's a lot going on with sort of gender and class and um, misogyny as well. Um, but, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> like that's the narrative that was pushed um, by law enforcement. And just, I think, and just well, I was going to I was I, just going to say, yeah, go for sorry, it. I was just going to say a really good point. My Spanish teacher actually made. I was having a discussion in Spanish class about this is. That even this sex, even this sex addiction, like you dominating kind of another race in another gender, is a symbol of not only misogyny but white supremacy as well. So even if it's true, you the, the the racial the racial motivation behind it is still there, and it's still kind of, it's still it's still kind of a racially motivated act. If that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I feel like regardless of his story, you still have to treat it as an attack against AAPI people in general. Yeah. I think I think there's. Um, I think there's definitely an element of truth to the sex addiction, but the problem with the reporting of that is that I think it was meant to deflect away from the the racial motivation um, of the crime. And I thought that was the most problematic thing about the reporting is how the, they, they, these two pieces probably work together, sex addiction and racism probably were interconnected in this crime, but um, one one kind of, people people who are reporting it, especially the sheriffs, chose to focus on that the one aspect of the sex addiction um, as kind of a kind of a character shield for that person. Whereas um, you would never see kind of law enforcement do that for somebody 
of another race, trying to protect their humanity before anything else. Just like when Dylan Roof went and shot the, where was it? Was it Charleston, right? Um, and they took him to a Burger King after um, arresting him in the drive-thru in the seat of a cop car. And um, and that kind of just uh, shows how um, when, especially perpetrators of racial hate crimes are white, uh, police, uh, their first instinct is to protect the um, shooter and to protect um, the shooter's kind of the narrative surrounding their actions rather than to kind of provide the truth to the public. Yeah, totally. You know, last week I showed uh, my students in class a clip from Trevor Noah's monologue about the shootings and he brings up that exact same point, right? Um, with these mass shootings perpetrated by young white men, you do have this tendency of law enforcement to sort of, um, as you said, protect and humanize um, or justify their motives um, and, and, you know, makes a point and says, you know, if that were a black killer, right, who went on a shooting rampage in a white neighborhood, um, I don't think you would get the same reaction. Yeah, I, I can, I'm almost willing to bet that you wouldn't get the same reaction because, um, I don't know, it's, it's such an interesting phenomenon. Same thing with Kyle Rittenhouse back in uh, Kenosha, mm -hmm. which is the most shocking thing about that, depending on, I know there's a lot of different people across the political spectrum who think different things about Kyle Rittenhouse's action. I, this is definitely not why we're having this conversation right now, so I'll move off of it shortly, but um, him, after killing two people, or three people, whatever it was, um, just walking calmly to the police officers, and the police officers kind of just, with a gun, the police officers kind of accepting him almost, um, and I think even releasing him afterwards. Um, I mean, like, I, there's no words to describe uh, this preferential police treatment um, between between races, and I think this is a big um, kind of underreported aspect of uh, this Atlanta story. Still understand how people call that guy hero, but I guess that's topic for another day um mm -hmm. yeah but with that with that with those kind of ideas i feel like it's important to move just to the events of the past year um ever since the pandemic began i feel like everyone is pretty much aware that there's been a rise in sentiment against asian americans um there's been a uh, an increase in reported acts of like racism and targeting maybe on the streets in terms of businesses etc um and just i guess reactions to that like how, how has it been, how has it, how have you felt about it? How has it been reported in the media? Um, and when was it changed? Yeah, you know, I think um, Stop API Hate, right, which is the organization that was formed last spring, right, to, uh, to report, to have uh, people report incidents of hate speech or violence, discrimination. I think they reported, you know, almost 4,000 incidents, right? And, and nationally, we, we see sort of hate crimes uh, decrease for other groups while against the API communities increased, right, over 100%. Um, you know, I think it is is good to focus on this last year, and, and obviously it's been garnering attention since the pandemic. But, you know, also understanding that there's a long history 
here of anti-Asian discrimination and violence beyond, you know, before COVID, before Trump, uh, Trump's rhetoric. Um, and so that this is actually should not be shocking because we've seen this happen, you know, for centuries and particularly, you know, xenophobia really increase in moments of economic instability, in moments of crisis during times of war, um, that there's been a lot of anti-Asian discrimination, anti-Asian legislation um, and, and, and racism, um, you know, throughout our country. So I think um, being able to uh, contextualize this last year in a much longer history um, and kind of educating ourselves on that history um, to, to really think about how we, how we can address it and stop this and not thinking that it's just a moment, an anomaly because we're in the middle of this pandemic right, that came, that originated in an Asian country, or that it, it, it only began because we had a former president who escalated tensions, right, with, with his rhetoric, that, that we have to see it as part of this long, longer history to know that, like, we're, we're complicit in it, right, that it's not just a couple individuals who are perpetrating these actions or perpetrating this, these, this hate speech, um, that if we don't do anything, right, or say anything, even when this even when this pandemic passes and we get out of this, um, that we have to like very actively continue to resist it. And one thing that we're talking about at the beginning, before we hopped on air, was how um, all of these kind of vectors of racism against different communities are not just. Um, are not just like the Asian American hate is not just extending into the past, but extending into the past and kind of weaving between um, different uh, forms of hatred and racism towards other um, ethnic minorities in this country. And um, we, one of the most interesting things about our quick chat before a recording was um, how the media plays uh, discrimination as a zero sum game, how um, there's attention on one group is viewed as kind of um, attention away from another and uh, how we kind of uh, how was there was a big surge of media reporting against about Asian American hate crimes at the beginning of the pandemic a year ago um, when Trump was calling it the China virus or the Kung flu or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that kind of died out after obviously the huge historical inflection point which was represented by George Floyd's death and and the summer of of protest and um and all that went into that how the media had media decided that that was the most newsworthy thing and unfortunately how social justice has become more uh about what is the most shocking headline or what is the most um uh kind of newsworthy topic or what's the what what is the best Instagram post? Um, what is the most important thing that Instagram posts about? Um, how it's become kind of distilled into that, uh, which is really problematic, not only for just the Asian American community, because unfortunately, too often their pain has been trumped by other forms of racism, but um, just for 
people fighting for all different forms of social justice activism. Yeah. yeah I, I was just going to say, I think adding, yeah, adding on to what you said, Cole, I feel like something I've noticed, at least in my lifetime, is that these mic, like microaggressions against Asian Americans kind of are, are not only normalized, but really just go unnoticed, you know, doing things like, like slanting your eyes or, or making fun of, you know, like things like, like Asian people, like studying math or playing the piano or, or just think like stereotypical things like that. Those, those have almost been normalized in our society. And I think that's really problematic. And I think something that needs to change is that people need to, in the same way that we're, we're trained to be so aware of racism towards other groups, I think we really need to be aware of racism and prejudice against Asian Americans. And not only that, but understand the history as well. I feel like Asian Americans have always been otherized in this country ever since, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act or Japanese internment. And I think there just needs to be a bigger awareness of that and how it kind of is still true today. Yeah. And, and you know, to your point, Taylor, I think, um, you know, we talk a lot about sort of this model minority myth. And um, I think part of... Um, the lack of voice maybe, or advocacy, even among the Asian American community, a lot of times the messaging that we get, right, is like, why are you complaining? Or don't be so sensitive, or you have it okay, or you're successful and you have privilege and um, class privilege, right, and educational privilege. Um, but you know, this, this, this myth, this stereotype is, is, is dangerous, right? And it really is a function of white supremacy, which is trying to create, as, as um, Cole mentioned, like this idea that it is a zero-sum game, right? That we have to sort of assimilate and aspire to whiteness in order to have a shot in this country. And it actually kind of erases the fact that there's been a lot of um, Black Asian solidarity, right, over the course of history. And um, one thing that the myth does, it totally um, kind of ignores the diversity even within among our community, right? That, um, um, that everyone sort of assumes that everyone in, in the Asian American community um, is successful or is thriving, right? And, 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 and not, not realizing that there's incredibly high poverty rates among um, popul Asian populations in our country, that there are still sort of issues with immigration status and language barrier that, um, that we don't get the mental health support that we need. Um, and that kind of, you know, that sort of myth, I think minimizes um, the, the problems that are, are, are real and happening in, among the Asian American community. And it, it, um, uh, it sort of uh, undermines like us sort of like fighting for, for, um, those rights and for and to be in solidarity with other marginalized groups. And I think one thing that you brought up that was really important there is um, how the Asian American community is so um, so diverse. It's a little bit shocking that we still characterize it as just Asian American um, because it's it's really really different. I know um, that, for example, historically um, Southeast Asian people. Uh, face a lot uh, more um, uh, kind of just negative stereotypes about them than certainly other types of or other Asian minorities that were more established um, here earlier 
um, in America. Mm-hmm. And with from all sides uh, that they received kind of kind of uh, disdain for them. And it's 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 sometimes convenient to just kind of group everybody together um, under just one label of Asian American, but um, but it's important to understand how every kind of every kind of ethnic group within the Asian American community has their own history with um, kind of oppression and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are not a monolith, right? I mean, I think the assumption is that when th- people think of Asian American, they think of East Asian, but we're not including the Pacific Islander community. We're not con- uh, considering the South and S- South Asian and Southeast Asian community. Um, there are different ways of immigration that have occurred in the past, right? In 1965, you had the immigration of mostly sort of like highly skilled, highly educated immigrants from East Asian countries, Northeast Asian countries like Korea. Um, but then you also have, um, you know, people who are displaced, right, by the Vietnam War and immigration of refugees who come with another, a totally different status, language, culture, displaced and 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 to the United States, by the way, because of U.S.-led efforts in Vietnam, right? Um, and so, I and clearly when they when they get here, they learn that there is a racial hierarchy in the United States, you know, and white is at the top and black is at the bottom. And this is sort of what they absorb and sort of like how they're going to assimilate. But I, I agree, right? It's, it's not a monolith. I think um, it's so diverse, which I think complicates that kind of solidarity movement. Um, but something to, of course, like be aware of um, that even within the API community, right? Um, there are hierarchies, there are, you know, um, different stories, right? It's something that happens, I think, within all ethnic minorities is it's the world is infinitely complex. Um, the same way I think I like to think about it is there's probably 7 billion or yeah, 7 billion races mm-hmm. in the world. And um, so yeah. it's, I mean, it is complex. And I think, I think going back to what we mentioned about, um, like how to kind of unite, right? And 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 make sure that the you know, the movement for like justice, it's really, you know, racial justice for everyone. Is that like even though you have people coming from different countries, and then of course you have, um, you know, different history for maybe the Latinx population and and Black Americans, right? Um, when you know wherever you are from in in asia right i think they've all we've all experienced this long history of colonization you know state violence oppression war bigotry um and although it's not as brutal as as the you know the anti-black and anti-indigenous agenda here in the united states that is a point where like everyone can unite you know i mean i think that's how i talk to you know, my elders or my relatives, when we talk about like anti-blackness, even in the Asian community, it's like, you actually have a lot more in common than you think. Um, you know, when I, when I talk to my Korean relatives about the, the period of colonization that they experienced, right. And the discrimination that they experienced, like, that's like a point where like, you can kind of share in the struggle. Agreed. And I feel like 
dividing us is what those against us want to an extent because mm-hmm. if if everyone if basically everyone unites i feel like we'll be so much stronger in a way um and i feel like we yeah. can t- tackle all these issues instead of approaching each of them separately i think yeah. assembly is assembly is something important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah i think uh i think it's like you're saying this fuck that there's um, that we were talking about how there's different vectors of discrimination within society. Um, but in terms of kind of the racism or all the ones that deal with race and ethnicity, ethnicity, they kind of stem from the same Genesis, which is kind of, um, kind of of this kind of white supremacist creation of, of the United States of America. And, it's more powerful to recognize how similar those vectors of discrimination are than kind of to separate them and to try to prioritize uh, which one to fix first, because um, unless you kind of fix, fix all of them, then you haven't really fixed anything. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, what would you, in terms of next kind of steps, in terms of uh, culturally or kind of legislatively, um, what what would you like to see, Ms. Falk, um, uh, happen um, in in the United States in the next maybe maybe year is too short of a time, but in the in the foreseeable future, what would be the ideal? Um, kind of, kind of thing to have happen um, to kind of combat this API racism. That's a really good question. Um, you know, there are so many great organizations that are doing this work that are addressing um, not just anti-Asian racism, right, but sort of sexism and discrimination against migrant workers. Um, such as in the case of the um, Atlanta spa workers. Um, I think just on a local level, you know, uh, beyond sort of what legislation the government can pass because it can pass legislation and it may not, it, you know, may not deter, right, the, the hate and the speech and the, the hate speech being the seeds for then action. Um, I would just encourage like everyone in just our community, just locally to just get educated on this, that it is all of our problems. It is not just one uh, group's problems. I think we're past the point when it's, when you have to, you can say like, well, it's not my job, right? That's sort of not my responsibility. Um, And, um, you know, you know, just reflect on your own actions. You know, I think when I was speaking with my students last week and they felt very like frustrated and they didn't know what to do. And they asked, what can I do? You know, as a young person, what can I do to kind of change this and shift this? Um, And I think, you know, Taylor pointed out earlier about like comments people make and the jokes people make. And it may not seem serious at first or you may take it lightly at first, but know that like, again, like, these are the seeds of what will later turn into increasing aggression, 
right? Um, and call people out and then call them in, right? Like these, if you really want to support your uh, BIPOC friends, neighbors, teachers, um, I'd say get educated and, and think like, what can I do to kind of stand up and speak out against this? Um, what are some organizations? So many Bay Area organizations, right? What are some organizations I can support either financially or um, volunteer at? Um, and, you know, push for learning more about it in your classes, in your curriculum. Um, I love that you were talking about this in your Spanish class, right? Even though maybe it's not directly related to the to the content you're learning, like it, like that gives me hope, right? That you're having these conversations at home, at school, in your communities. Um, so I don't know. I think for me, I just I, I want to um, reach out to like within our community, right? In areas where we feel like we do have control. Um, to prevent, you know, what we've been seeing this last year, it's, you know, just horrific. Yeah. I was wondering one thing, Tilly, do you remember reading any books about the Asian American experience? I know they uh, tried to incorporate more. I read, so. let's see, in 10th grade, I read When the Emperor Was Divine. Oh, uh, yeah. That was okay, the one I, I totally I, forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it is it is one book in whatever my six years at Henry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think often yeah. students get like Chinese Exclusion Act and then Japanese American incarceration, right? Which are of course important to learn about, but there's so much <laughs> right in between. And I think again, it's not just about highlighting our suffering or our oppression, but also highlighting historically what has been our activism, right, which has kind of been erased, like, you know, Asian, there were Asian American farm workers in alliance with the with Cesar Chavez, right, in Dolores Huerta here in California, right, we think of um, women activists like Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs, who were part of the civil rights movement. Um, and, and, and so, Learning about their stories, right? I think uh, is just as important as learning about the history of discrimination and oppression. Yes, and my, I yeah. think. Go for it, Taylor. I was just gonna say, my my wish is that more Asian American people get involved in politics. Period. Um, because as someone who is Asian American and who's interested in studying politics and maybe even going politics in the future, who knows? I feel like we're just such an underrepresented community in there. You know, I heard a story about a, like someone, someone made like a presidential poll and Asian Americans weren't included in like the race category. And there were, they, someone asked why. And they said, because they're basically, they're basically like they're in terms of like statistics, they're just such a small demographic that was kind of asked the poll question that it didn't make any sense to include them. And I don't think that's right because Asian Americans make up a huge part of the United States. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I just, in, in politics, like even in our politics, I noticed that there's virtually no Asian American representation. In fact, I think Andrew Yang was, in my lifetime at least, one of the first kind of politicians, he's not even really a politician, first candidate who kind of came to national prominence that is an Asian American. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting. So I hope, I hope that, I think politics is like a very 
important platform for making change. And I hope that more Asian American people can not only get involved, but also like bring attention to the issues. Even if you don't want to run for office, you know, you can do things like call your representative, kind of advocate mm -hmm. these issues more. Mm -hmm. Voter registration. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think we, that's, it's been an awesome podcast. We've covered a lot um, of, of really important ground and hopefully uh, maybe one day uh, mm -hmm. some future head race um, student will be combing through the records of, of Xbox in this podcast, come across this episode and be like, man, the world is a messed up place back in 2021 <laughs> when we're recording this. And I guess that'd be the, the best case scenario, but mm -hmm. at the very least, hopefully um, s this can help uh, kind of provide some insight to to members within our community who aren't as familiar about with um, with kind of the Asian American experience, um, and hopefully help them kind of understand uh, why the Atlanta shooting was so significant, but also why the nineteen hundred percent increase in the last year is maybe even more significant. Yeah. And real quick, not to not to do my own horn, but. If you were interested, if any of our listeners are interested in content to read, last year I wrote an article about Trump calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus, um, and was talking about a lot of anti-anti-Asian sentiment going on. So even though it's a year old, I feel like it's still very relevant. Um, so if you're curious, go check that out. It's on the Hedoris Hawkeye website. You can probably find it. Maybe by the time it's out, we'll have a new website for Xfos. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> potentially check it out on the new website. Um, uh, with that, I think, thank you so much, Ms. Pock, uh, for, for donating, um, 35, 38 minutes of your time, um, to us. And I, I had an awesome time. I did too. Um, it was really a great discussion. I'm glad we were able to have it. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you gave me this airtime and I just want to thank you, Taylor and Cole, like, you know, speaking to sort of what I'd like to see, like you are doing what the community needs to do. I mean, you're spotlighting this very important issue and giving it um, space and attention. And so thank you for all you're doing. I mean, this is part of the advocacy work, right? And, and it's, you were two young adults who are, are, are leading, um, leading these efforts. And so, uh, my, you know, I'm in gratitude to you both as well. Um, well, thank you, Ms. Falk. Um, I think maybe we'll, uh, I hopefully um, more people can, maybe more Xbox articles will be written or mm -hmm. more uh, people will check in the Asia Club to see uh, what what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, if you have any questions or if anyone listening has any questions or things they want to talk about, uh, I feel like your door is always open, Ms. Falk, right? Um, yes, door is always open. Um, for the most part, our meetings, our Asia Club meetings are open to all. I know this will come out later, but you know we, we have a special guest coming tomorrow to talk about this exact issue. Um, he's an actor, an activist, alumnus. Daniel Wu, he's been in the news um, quite a bit recently. 
Um, and, you know, this spring Asia Club, I'll put in a little plug, we're planning a fundraiser, we're still in the works, but um, we're planning a fundraiser and benefits uh, what the money we raise will benefit um, Stop API Hate, which is the organization also that has been in the news a lot. So look out for that. And if you can, please support our fundraiser. It goes to a good cause. Definitely uh, check it out. Uh, make sure you keep up with whatever Asia Club is doing. And as always, uh, see you guys next week. Um, have an awesome rest of your day and uh, take care. Stay safe. See you later.